Welcome to episode two of Thor's World. I'm Thor. Uh, with me, as always, my lovely co-host and beautiful human, Eric. And today we have a very special guest, uh, one of our SAG-eligible members, uh, Aiden. Aiden, welcome to the show. Well, thank you thank for being you for with us. Me. We're glad you could make it. Yes. Um, not that there's anything going on, right? Because uh, of the yeah. So No, we're uh, supposed today... to make him seem busy and important. Yeah, well, he's SAG eligible, not SAG member. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but today we're going to talk because we have just hit the pinnacle of 119 days of the writer's strike. And into those, before the 100 days, it was then SAG went on strike. And um, the experience that I've had is because um, the writer's strike has been talked about, essentially you know, at least rumblings of it since last October. Yeah. And then, you know, what followed the writer's strike, granted we were still like seven months out, was, oh, you know, the DGA could potentially go on strike, which they didn't. And then, you know, SAG could potentially go on strike. So now we find ourselves in the first time since 1960 that there is a, both a writer's strike and a SAG strike. So what have you guys, you guys paying attention to that at all? Reading into it, anything of the sort? A little bit. I do know that now, this is now longer than the last writer's strike, which was like 2007 or 8. 2008. It was like the mid-2000s, late-2000s. And fun fact about that is, yeah, it was about eight months. It went on for so long. I think it was 100 days, so we've now passed that point. This oh, going yeah. On. Well, yeah. it was, the good thing about that writer's strike was then we got the boom of television. Mm. True. We got. Dexter and Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones and all these shows that kind of came out out of nowhere and that's great. So now we find ourselves in 2023, four months, right, give or take, yeah. into the writer's strike, uh, about six weeks into the SAG strike, and you know it's kind of crazy. Just kind of people that know me know that I'm in the industry. It's like either they know, either they're not in this in the industry and they kind of know what's going on or they're not in the industry and, and like everybody else they just don't care you know and yeah or they have like the wrong impression of it well i mean when the writer strike started i kind of found myself like on the fence and it was like well i understand what the writers are asking for but i also know being on the other end of that is that they're asking for too much mm. and you know you can agree to disagree with anybody um you know we live in an age now where artificial intelligence is becoming a thing where why are we going to dish when, when, when productions are becoming so expensive, right? When you're spending $329 million on an Indiana Jones movie, that was subpar at best. And that's my, just my opinion of it. You know, what do you think? Um, the director of that movie got paid as his writer fee taking over from previous writing duties that they already paid a writer to do so, you know? So then, so then, you know, for me, it's like, uh, for someone who's been part of a television production and you have a whole writer's room and you have 10 writers in there and, you know, one of those writers might not even get a full writing credit, but you're still paying them 30 K up front for maybe, maybe just doing a story. Yeah. I believe that is part of the, like something that they're asking for. I don't know exactly what the terms are, but I know it has a lot to do with the writer's room, like their demands. They want it to be set up like a certain way and have like a certain um, like predetermined amount of writers on a show before right. like, you know, because in the middle of a season, the, the, some kind of studio or whoever can start playing around with the manpower numbers and be like, oh, actually, we don't want that many people. Oh, we want a smaller room. So being honest, Aiden, what was the last 
show that you watched that you were just like, wow, this is great writing? And did you did you pay attention to the fact that maybe there was multiple writers? Is that something that you kind of look into? Um, well, like my favorite show of all time that still blows me away this day is, is The Sopranos. And I think it is, and I think a lot of people would agree with me, it's like a master class of so many things, especially the writing, because that is truly a show where the writing just shines, or outshines everything. Because if you watch it the first time, it, it, it comes across as a drama. But like when you watch it the second or a thir- or third time, the whole context almost changes. I see it almost as like a comedy now, which a lot of people would be like, oh my God, that's crazy. But if you kind of just listen to what they're saying and you, know, you see how these scenes play out and then you kind of think of it on a page or if you even pull up a page of a script, there's almost no information there. Just the writing, like just the lines, what they're saying. Everything else is shown on the screen. So to be able to do that so well for like six and a half seasons, like that's pretty damn good, I think. I think nowadays... You know, because that kind of ushered in such a new era of television and kind of like what you said before, the Breaking Bads and the Dexters, it changed everything. It changed the industry as well. So now I think we're dealing with kind of the, I'm going to say repercussions, but it's like the aftershock. All this stuff happened and we had a second golden age of television. And it's like all these studios, I think, kind of want to just keep milking it because obviously it makes a lot of money. Breaking Bad was massive. Game of Thrones, another one. Um, it's my favorite one. So what do you pro- see... Sorry, not to cut you off, right. but like when you guys are watching a show, and I say show specifically because, you know, for those of you that don't know, a lot of shows that are on television, they have writer's rooms, yeah. right? And those are for people that are, you know, granted you'll find a show once in a while. And so this is where it gets a little tricky. Like yeah. when you go back to the earlier, you brought up Game of Thrones. When you go back to the earlier seasons or just about every season, 90% of that show is written by the showrunners. But then you have a whole writer's room of people, you know, you know, you have a writer's room of people. You might have like six additional writers. Maybe they co-wrote something like that. And so, um, you know, granted, some of those writers were also directors and just the way that Game of Thrones works because of their shooting schedule. Right. Where you're filming eight or nine months out of the year and you're basically crossing every episode. You're filming in three different countries. And so. Um, you know, granted, like it's not as a pop like the first season basically was essentially written by David and and David and David, and but they had a whole writers' room, so you're showing out a di- an additional like two hundred fifty k, right? Yeah. Maybe for additional writers that might not even get a credit on this thing, but you're still paying them. You're still paying to fly them out to Europe. You're still paying to put them up in a hotel. You're putting them in a in a in a, in a writer's office. And maybe their ideas made it onto the screen, but they didn't get credit for it. But you're still paid this person, and their only job for the next 10 months, even though they just got paid up front or however it works, they're getting 30 k up front, right, or something mm. like that. They got to now stretch that across the whole year because they can't take other jobs, you know? I mean, what's your experience with when it comes to writers? You've worked on mm. movies, right? Yeah. So have you ever compare the two of like whether you write a movie or you write a television show and where that kind of fits in i mean i know the processes are like very different yeah um and it's probably a lot easier for someone to be a writer for film as opposed to a writer for television just because of what you just said i mean if you're getting paid x amount up front but you can't take jobs for the rest of the year i mean yeah in theory having that lump sum in your pocket like yeah, up front is, is nice. like nice but it's like First, but yeah. that money's got to go bills got to be realize you can't take anything else exactly it's not worth it so then when you see like a shit show right mm-hmm. 
and you're like, wow, this writer just got paid 40K, you know, for what? Yeah. The show's terrible. I wouldn't Season 8 Game of Thrones. To... Huh? Season 8 Game of Thrones. Season 8 Game of Thrones, but like a show, like, I'm sure you guys are all fans here of She-Hulk, right? Wasn't that just the epitome? Look at you guys Marvel are all laughing. <laughs> Isn't that just the epitome of show making? Like, who wouldn't want to see uh, uh, She-Hulk twerking with this, whatever that bitch's name was? But it, it, <laughs> I forget. I'm just uh, saying. But my, my, my point is, is like, those writers got paid the same as Game of Thrones writers. Right. And for yeah. a long time, Game of Thrones was running the scene. It was the most downloaded show, most pirated show, et cetera, et cetera. And it actually managed to like implode on itself and take itself out of the popular, uh, popular culture. Yeah. I mean, I can't even go back and watch the, the first series no. because I know how it ends. And mm-hmm. you don't see even something like Harry Potter, which I think you could almost put on the same level, even though it's, it's a film. Like people still talk about that. There's references, there's jokes, there's memes. There's nothing from well, Thrones. for There's the most part. Nothing. It's funny you bring up Harry Potter. For the most part, there was one writer basically for yeah. all those movies, uh, Steve Clovis. Yeah. You know, and the funny thing is, like Steve Clovis could adapt seven Harry Potter books, doing what you can for the best when you have movie adaptations. But then he also went and did Amazing Spider-Man Two. You know, which is basically the movie that just destroyed that franchise before it even kind of got off the ground. Yeah. So, you know. So when you see the picket lines and you see that uh, the AMTP, whatever, AMPTP, you know, they're not budging because, you know, who do you think is in the wrong? If you're if you're an outside person, right, and you see all these people that are standing on picket lines in 100 degree L.A. And you have like, what do you think? Like, what's the general thing? More money? From what I've heard, like, because I'm really the only one of like my friends and everything that works in this field they work in like they're engineers and stuff like that so when they see the stuff on tv that you know there's picket lines and everything the first thing is always just like you know well they're rich they're spoiled why do they have to pay more money because when people hear about this stuff on tv they think it's just the actors and everybody who makes all that money they don't realize how many people don't make that kind of money and how a lot of this stuff just doesn't happen anymore. Like these giant salaries and everything, it's gone away. Yeah. But the revenue from all these companies, I mean, what they're asking for in the strike in terms of money, and I've seen so many different, you know, graphs and everything, but it seems to be somewhere between like 1% and 3% of the profits that they make a year. Well, the writers... It does not sound like a lot. And that's not for a small group of people. That's for a couple, probably a couple hundred thousand people. That work in this industry. Yeah, it's a, you have, I think the WGA re, uh, represents hundreds of thousands of people, but, or I could be totally wrong. Maybe I'm thinking SAG, which we'll get to. But so when you have a writer that can't, that has to stretch out, granted, you know, when you're on film sets, you're a writer, you get everything that you want. You're, you're put in the nicest hotels, you're, 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 you're treated like five star, uh, high class. And then, you know, so, so, what do you tell to the to the additional grip? You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, well, somebody that is an additional grip, like... You know, additional grip, I'm sure an additional grip that's there for the day could easily write something just as good as an episode of She-Hulk. You yeah. Know, might not even be better. But I, so I guess my point is, is you bring up kind of the spoiled aspect, right? And yeah, and, and then if you take a deep dive into what they're really asking for, I've seen anywhere it's really from like, well, much. we want guaranteed 52 weeks of work. And if you're familiar with the unions, unions don't work like that. They might help you find work. They'll bring you into the union. You'll have access to everything that somebody outside the union. Yeah, but there's no guarantee. Have. They don't guarantee. Yeah. There's no guarantee that you get. That's 52 why it's a rolling list. It's an availability list, a definitely higher list. And so mm-hmm. I know that, like, um, 
when you have somebody like, for instance, that's just killing it is, I don't know how many of you guys watch Yellowstone, but you know that Ter- Taylor Sheridan, you, you brought up the, the, the writer's room and how they want like 12, not writers, but like how studios wanted 12 writers up to from six to 12 writers. And a lot of writers came out and they're like, well, that's bullshit. We don't want any of that. Who who would propose that, especially when you're paying everybody so much money? Yeah. And then you have Taylor Sheridan, who's got four Yellowstone shows and then multiple other Paramount shows. And then you kind of compare and contrast that, that all those shows, they're not even really being watched. Yeah. Right? I think that's the other big issue in the strike is the viewership. Because this seems to be something that a lot of, especially the streaming that, uh, services, they don't want to budge on. They don't want to have to release the actual numbers. Well, for there's the residuals. That's that's exactly. a conversation when it comes to residuals, and it's the same thing with SAG too. Because as we kind of get into a full technical technological society that we are in now, and you realize like. I mean, like I said, I brought up AI because that's become a big thing. And I don't know how many, if you've, if you've really tried chat GBT or any of the AI sources out there, they could just write a script in a second. Yeah. Like second. And if I you tried... want, if you want your pages, if you want, if you have a scene that you're really trying to figure out and you, and you mm-hmm. just copy and paste whatever you've written to chat GBT and mm-hmm. you say, fix this. Yeah. Granted, you have to give it a few prompts and it writes it. Why yeah. would a studio exec look at? Six to twelve writers that are making, you know, it's a million dollars out of their budget mm-hmm. when they can just uh, put in a computer, put in a computer and get it. And when this whole thing started coming out, like I'm like, you know, with AI and the writers and all that stuff, I'm like, so like for shits and giggles, I go into like one of these websites. I'm like, write me a script about this, and like it writes a script. Obviously, it's not the best script, but you read it, and there's like point A to point B to point C, and anyone, point. any like a director could take that and just like fill in the gaps. Correct. Or but a studio executive. Studio, studio executive. And you don't have to pay for it. And, and you don't have to pay you for it. Well, I did access. see, um, I think recently, this past week, there was some court ruling somewhere that said anything created by AI cannot be copyrighted. Which actually... Well, now they're trying to work on getting it copyrighted. I'm sure. Not I'm sure getting it copyrighted is part of the new negotiations, I think. Well, I, I didn't mean for the unions. I meant oh. like uh, law in the oh. country that you cannot copyright something that was created through AI, which is a huge victory for everybody in the unions, I think, because now... Because then the studio has to buy it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's kind of a win where you can it's take It's a small... It. You can take the victories or you can get them. Yeah. So when you see that they're asking for more money, where does that... Like, as a person that's not in the... I mean, I know we're all in the industry here, but like... What do you say to somebody that's watching, and and we can include SAG in this too, when you have somebody like Matt Damon out there whose net worth is like hundreds of millions of dollars, the dude closed off an entire NYC block just to move into his apartment, you know, and 80% of SAG is just background actors that are making the daily rate and whatever the daily rate is currently. And, you know, so when he's out there and he's he's the face of your movement saying we need more money, yeah, it definitely does not. Does it make anybody want to get and be like, oh, yeah, we support that? I because think there are a lot of people that are doing it for the right reasons. It does mm. speak to a larger... I think Fran Drescher said something about this, um, the SAG president, yeah. um, that this is more or less part of something bigger. That, you know, it, and not, not to get, like, so far off topic, but, like, there are a lot of movements, like, labor movements in this country that maybe should happen. And this seems to be one that's at the forefront of people finally trying to um, kind of understand, get a better understanding of the value of their labor and expecting to be paid for it. And granted, we, when you work in film, depending on your department, you can be paid pretty well, even as like an actor, if you're not a Matt Damon type, you can make like some good money. 
you know, in a few days. But when you see the flip side of it and you see how few people above the line are making almost all the money from your labor, you should feel like a little cheated. And I don't think, I don't think that's entirely, you know, crazy or unreasonable, you know, but, um, especially in an industry where, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer are two of the biggest movies out right now. And Barbie's past a billion dollars. Oppenheimer's trying to get there. And Margot's going to make $50 million. Exactly. You know, because of the deal that she had. And like, you know, that's good for her. But like, like, what in the caveat, like to play devil's advocate is like, you sign up for that by, you know, because everyone has to do the start work and stuff. And like, so why not voice that concern before you start working? Because it's like, well, chances are they're going to be like, well, you're making X amount of money an hour. What do you want more? Like, it's that old school. Mm. But you want to know, it's like, you know, even though they're SAG affiliated and they have their SAG cards, they also have really good agents and managers. That exactly. Can cut those they deals. have other resources that most people But that don't. doesn't take away from the fact that they haven't worked hard for it. Yeah. And that's not to say that everybody hasn't worked hard. I mean, there are people that I've worked with that I've met on sets, background people that are totally happy with being non-union members, but they're working consistently. Yeah. And some yeah. of them, a lot of them, is just kind of their side hustle, right? And that's, so, that's my case, yeah. You know, and then you talk to a lot of non-union BG that are like, no, I don't even want to join SAG because you don't work as much, you know, because of the competition. Because, you know, that's the problem with, like, with unions now, right, is there are plenty of non-union BG or non-union SAG members that I've spoken to over the years that are like, no, I don't even want to join SAG because you don't work as much. I'm working fine. I'm making 200 bucks a day, but I'm working consistently. And if I were in SAG right now, I wouldn't be getting as much work. And I can tell you for somebody who used to run and, you know, coordinate with background, when it comes to actually filming, like when you're about to do a scene and you're, you have a, like you're, let's just say you're filming on location or you're filming in a set that you've built that's like a dance club or something like Power or Luke Cage, you know, two shows that I've been a part of that had multiple times where we needed like hundreds of BG. and the ADs would be like, well, take all the non-union because, you know, after a certain amount of time, SAG needs to take a break and it really screws with our schedule and stuff like that. So like, you know, so like even if being in the union, you're still getting screwed. Yeah. Yeah, It's definitely like perspective because I had a lot of people tell me uh, once I got my waivers for SAG, you need three of them and you have to pay the fee. And they're like, oh yeah, you should definitely do it. It's worth it because, you know, you'll make more money and it's like, you'll get paid, you know, for the same job, yeah, you'll make a little bit more. But like you said, now you're in competition with people who are like actually, it's like you're in competition with Matt Damon now. Not that you're going to go up for the same role right away, but you know, he's clearly going to have this big body of work that you are now limiting yourself to basically just not getting because you can't take non union stuff. You know, you can't just have like these little side projects and have like a real, it all has to be union. Mm-hmm. So, at so what point do like, at, at, at what point do people like start like recognizing that before they get into the union, just like it's not even worth it anymore? Like, from my experience, like I find that people who didn't know that and got into it were like, all right, well, now I really have to try. And you know, they did pretty well. It's, it's like anything else, you know, some big it, some don't. But, um, like I really I held off on joining because of that because I'm like, well, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of do this on the side, but if I want to ever, you know, take it like really seriously. I have to start getting some student into some like student films or something, you mm-hmm. know, something that isn't. Union. So you could you could essentially be a SAG member and still working at Dunkin' Donuts, but you could be that yeah. with a strike or not a strike. You know, no offense to Dunkin' Donuts, I love mm-hmm. Dunkin' Donuts. No, Dunkin' is terrible. Don't work there. <laughs> when you get your call. But so like, so being on the outside of this, right? So okay, so we're in the streaming period. 
and the streaming is now dying, which, you know, COVID it took off for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. So if you're not in the industry and you're paying $25 to Netflix and on top of Netflix, you've got Max, you got Hulu, Hulu, Disney Plus, you've got the Disney Now Hulu you have the package. free ones too with the ads. Like, so when you mm-hmm. hear that SAG wants a piece of every dollar, Every SAG member gets a piece of every dollar of a streaming subscription. It's unrealistic. Well, that, but, but like, when you're somebody who can barely afford that, you're you're working in a low income job. You're not in any union. You're just trying to get by, and you realize that now that twenty five dollars is going to go towards somebody who's refusing to work because they're striking. And granted, maybe a lot of people in the union didn't want to strike. So like, you know. The studios need that subscription because then they have to put into, uh, you know, that's how they make their content, you know? And if they don't keep up with content, then their streaming service dies. But it's also the same as where you're putting out shit content, your streaming service dies. Mm-hmm. So then, as Eric said, it's unrealistic because you have people that are asking for average Joe's dollar for every subscription. Granted, like Netflix... You know, granted, Netflix has lost subscribers. Disney- yeah, I read this morning they lost over 200,000. Yeah, and they wanted, they were expecting 200,000. I remember last year they were expecting millions, they were expecting over 2 million new subscribers. They lost 250,000. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so then you're at, you have all these people that are refusing to work. They're all striking. Or it's the very few people that wanted to strike because they know that they're getting screwed. Yeah. That are now... Um, responsible for everybody being out of work yeah but that that is like that box that these like the studios know that people are going to be put in because there's some that like i don't have a wife kids i don't have like a family a house i have to pay a mortgage so the strike doesn't affect me as much as somebody that does have all those things you know and they obviously feel very differently and yeah i think there's definitely going to be some kind of animosity happening you know because of that reason but at the end of the day it's everybody that's kind of getting screwed you know there's a good friend of mine um He's my producing partner, but he also says it's a purge. Yeah. It's a purge. It's a course correction. I think at the beginning of the Do you COVID, think this is Hollywood's way of saying, and I say Hollywood because it's Hollywood, do you think this is Hollywood saying, like, okay, well, if we're not going to have so control over AI and writing scripts that we're just going to get rid of the shit writers that we've paid so much money for? I think so. I, th- I think... I think it's something like that. But I also think it's like, at, th- at this point especially, yeah, I think the streaming services are, are dying. I yeah. think the industry itself. I don't want to say that it's dying. I it's, think it is, everything is kind of coming to a head now. Yeah. And we are at the point that we're going to see what happens next. And like, I think the biggest uh, example of that was the Barbenheimer thing. Mm-hmm. Because you had two, even though one of them was a very big IP, the other one's a historical drama, Two original movies that came out, both once two hours, once three hours, almost at a billion dollars. One's over a billion dollars. One's almost at a billion dollars. People are still going to see it. I went and saw them again last week. The theater was packed on a Wednesday night. Mm. Like on a Wednesday night. When have you ever seen a packed movie theater since before COVID? So people are clearly hungry for something that these studios are not providing. And I think that this, like this time period that we're living in and all this change is going to redirect some kind of new movement somewhere, you know, whether it's Hollywood out here or somewhere else. But I think it's like the beginning of something, like the next phase. You know? We'll come back to that. 
Hey guys, Yerlin here. Thank you so much for giving Thor's World Podcast a listen. Did you know that you could watch this episode on YouTube? So be sure to subscribe over there and we'll be posting episodes every single Friday. Thank you. We are back. Aiden, you, you bring up a lot of good points and definitely a conversation mm. for a different day because you talk about Barbenheimer, which was like, not only were Oppenheimer and Barbie like very well marketed on their own, mm. but the whole Barbenheimer. It kind of just it kinda, organically it blew, happened. It blew up. Well, and, we think it's organic. It yeah. So then, but you kind of just hit the, the main point on the head of, you got two, you got two movies that are. I mean, Oppenheimer. It's not I think, a franchise. It's not at a universe. It's not a continuation. It's not, it's a, not sequel, a Marvel it's not movie, a which Marvel's struggling. And again, conversation for another time. But like, you're gonna have to wait every three or four years for an event like that, or even just one yeah. of those movies. I mean, well, they're Barbara, already trying to force it to happen again. Like Paramount picked up on it, and they're trying to do like Saw Patrol and Saw because Patrol. it's yeah. Paw Patrol and Saw. But if you just like. You know, if you got any kind of common sense, you just see that yeah, they don't get that it. One is they don't forced. get what was so, so good. So my point is, is that you, Barbie cost, I think it was like hundred million. Yeah, and and Oppenheimer cost probably about two hundred million. Plus, you're you're factoring into hundred million dollars each for marketing, right? Which is like it's crazy absurd to me when you find out that in 1980 they made the original Indiana Jones for forty million dollars, right? Indiana Jones 5, 40 years later, costs five times that, yeah. six times that, plus $100 million in marketing. So you're almost at $500 million, right? Yeah, and it flopped. That so that's just one movie, and it flopped, right? So we're talking like Disney, Disney Plus doing terrible. Disney yeah. itself, mm-hmm. terrible. Cable has just completely died off. Premium networks are all essentially streaming now. Yeah, even they're struggling you know, too. So Television and movies used to be kind of an event for everything. Yeah. Right? Like when Breaking Bad was on TV, it was an event every Sunday, right? And yeah. and you talk about The Sopranos. It was an event, especially when you got towards the end of the last season. Yeah. Everybody knew The Sopranos was, you know, it came out on TV in 1999. It ended in 2007. Yeah, 2007. So when the end of that came around, it's because of like the buildup, the weight, the devotion of it. It was the same thing with Game of Thrones. It was an event. You know, it was like a, a phenomenon. Streaming mm-hmm. comes around and they, they turn everything on its head, right? They release everything at once. Yep. And humans, for the brain capacity, is not, we're not meant, to, binge model is not supposed to be a thing. And that's where Netflix was like, okay, well, we're going to spend a billion dollars a year on a hundred movies. And, and then, and we talk about like Barbenheimer, okay, Stranger Things, Wednesday, um, uh, to be honest, that's the last kingdom. Yeah. I mean, you have so many yeah. random things that become huge hits, but why is like when Netflix put friends on, when Netflix put uh, the office and now suits just came on Netflix and it's like blowing up. Yeah. Right. And then you have random shows like Cobra Kai, which was like a YouTube original show. And now it's a huge show. Yeah. For Netflix, People watch yeah. it because it's like cult and it's a following. So instead of focusing on like 10 shows a year and making them really good, paying your writers what they're worth, paying your actors what they're worth. Instead, what you're doing is you're spending a billion dollars just to get content off the ground. Yeah. You know, there's a movie, and, and again, conversations for a different time, but I just want to make this point. There was a movie that Will Smith came out called Emancipation. I'm sure none of you saw it. 
the movie, he got paid $35 million for that movie. Nobody saw that movie. I heard Chris Rock talk about it, though. But that's the point. <laughs> you heard somebody <laughs> else talk about it because Chris Rock, that was prior to, you know, the infamous slap. So I guess what the point is, is just like things have come, become more costly, you know, but even paying like, remember Will Smith used to be a draw and this is mm, yeah. even before the slap, like regardless of the fact he's not drawing people in anymore, but you're still paying him hundreds of millions of dollars for yeah. what, exactly. you know? And so now you're overpaying for streaming. You're raising your streaming prices. Everything's not good. You're overpaying, not crew, because everybody or anybody that knows that what we do, you're paying crew not as much as you'd pay talent. Yeah. You're paying talent and writers and directors up the wazoo. You know, and I say 30K because that's like, that's reasonable. But now, so the point that I'm making is everything is now so stretched thin. Yeah. Right? You know, and I think the SAG off the top of my head, the SAG daily rate for like a, for like a, uh, for a, uh, like a cast, like a, like a established cast member, you know, depending on maybe 10 years ago, they would have made a hundred thousand dollars an episode, right? Now they're making 15 and how much are they really seeing? So I can put it in perspective. I think the SAG daily rate for a cast member is like $1,100, right? And if you've done dealt with contracts like I've dealt with, so let's say that they're they're on a, a, a specific contract that you know they do a full episode, right? They work the full ten days. That's not bad, but that's still only eleven k, right? Ten yeah. percent of that has to go to their manager, another ten to their agent. Tax is taken out. So how much are they really walking away with? Yeah. Mm. And obviously, the higher you, the the more you make, the more taxes get taken out. Yeah. So if you're making thirty k. But now we're not at just 30K an episode. We're talking 30K a season, right? And the agents are already taking their money. Taxes have already come out. So you're really walking away with like 10,000. And now you have to make that 10,000 last. Well, is it that yeah. it was spread thin or was it that it's siphoned? Well, that too. Because I find that once, you know, if, if I meet somebody that doesn't really know anything about the strike, they're like, oh, well, they all make loads of money. And you start explaining well, these it. things. It's like almost like, well, yeah, uh, what's it, the David Zaslav guy from Warner Brothers makes over $100 million a year. And, you know, he doesn't want to pay 0.1% of Warner Brothers revenue to. Well, that's because whoever. there's also, and to that note, is because Warner Brothers is also doing terrible. They're flop. I mean, I know all of you saw Blue Beetle. And I know all of you saw the Actually, Flash movie. I think Barbie was their only major success this year. Mm. Barbie's the only movie that they've done. And we're talking, we're in almost September now. So yeah. you're thinking almost nine months of movies and not a single one has even made its budget back. Paramount's in the same boat. And yeah. the, the problem with them is that they really don't have much coming up for the rest of the year. Well, and the other, the funny thing you bring up pa Paramount is Paramount is also where the Taylor Sheridan universe is. Everything's mm. on Paramount, but it's on streaming. Yeah. You know, so like people used to pay like, the reason that cable was so successful for as long as it was because you have packages, right? Internet, phone, cable, premium, all that stuff. You were paying yearly way less. Well, it's like they do it with ads now. Yeah. Yeah, HBO. HBO with ads, I think, is the craziest thing. Because I always remember, like, we had HBO when I was a kid, and it was always like, there's no ads. That was, yeah, like, the big draw. Like it was point. like, whoa, whoa. And so, so now, so, yeah, I mean, so now you have Matt Damon and the lowest paid SAG actor both demanding yeah. a piece of the subscription like why am i going to pay matt damon yeah. of all people well from from so from another person who's not really in these unions that are affected but like my job is still affected 
yeah. because the industry is shut down. Another major talking point that also involves money. Like me, I see it as like, oh, it's about money, but it's also about these AI scans that they want to do. That's also yeah. you know, like me. When I look at the strikes, I'm like, all right, well, fuck the money. That's the one that's the most scary to me because it's like yeah. AI isn't just affecting the film industry. AI is something that should be scaring a lot of people. Yeah. Well, we make a point of it being AI now, but 10 years ago, it was just a body scan. Mm-hmm. Because if something happened, then, well... And the 10 crazy... years ago, it was just robots. Correct. That was it. It was a mm-hmm. robot, this, robot. Now it's AI. Now it's something that can actually think for itself. So yeah. uh, you bring up Game of Thrones, and so, you know, House of the Dragon came out, and to everybody's surprise, it was pretty good. Good writing. But not too long ago, they released kind of the, all the behind-the-scenes stuff of House of the Dragon, and it was really cool. It was called The House of Dragons Built, and it was behind the scenes of every episode, and mm-hmm. yeah. that it took 10 months. So the point that they bring up is, like, as anybody who's been in it for over a decade, like me, they were shooting it during COVID, which means COVID, they brought their numbers down for background. Granted, it was a show where they're, like, in stadiums and coronations and tournaments and all that stuff. Where you normally would need a lot of people. A lot of background, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference of body scans? If they're just going to take you doing what they normally do, they're, and they're going to change your costume mm-hmm. and put you in a different section. Well, they wouldn't even do that much. Cause it's like what you said earlier. Like people, You could have people that are non-union, and they'll get consistent work, and they'll make like a, you know, a decent amount of money. And like there's nothing wrong with that. If anything, that's like how it should be, because it seems so normal to us. But for whatever reason studios realize well you know it would just be easier if it's a one-time deal you get a mm-hmm. finite amount of background people you know we scan them and pay them one day and then you are used as they put in their contracts forever uh throughout the known universe in perpetuity you know it, mm-hmm. so it's but insane. even if ai wasn't a thing if we called it something else we just called it well we're just gonna copy your body and digitally with a computer do well, it ourselves well, i think what it is is like nowadays it's getting so advanced where it's like now well, it needs to be you raised. have to have like that concern some kind of rule but this is even like a bigger issue the united states is one of the few countries in the world that has like absolutely no regulation on ai mm. even countries like china and everybody else has it we have absolutely nothing and if we just had something in place mm. this whole strike may not have happened you know or it would not have been drawn out well, because there's a lot I of think... other things as well uh, involved with this strike but it, that's one of the big talking do you, points do you think that studios didn't even have an idea of maybe what they were when it came to AI, exactly? No, I think they knew exactly what they were doing because as when you're in that kind of a position, you're going to try to do everything for the bottom dollar because that's just how a business works. You're going to want to save money when you, where you can. Mm-hmm. And they might not know anything about chat, you know, like how it works or anything. Well, there's so many AIs. Well, if, yeah. if you were a writer and I came to you, well, you know, we have this program now. If you put your demographic information in there and maybe a couple of things here and there, it could come up with a script. You'd be like, oh, yeah, like you would be all over it because all those problems that you said before, like having to deal with six to ten writers, pay them X amount of money for a year. That's a big part of your budget. Now that's gone. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow. Well, there was I a could- show that I worked on that they spent an arm and a leg moving it from L.A. to New York. It was already an established series for Showtime. They moved it after five seasons in L.A. Mm. Already an expensive show for what it was. And, you know, to follow up on that point, it's because you're just paying the cast so much money. And that usually tends to happen with, you know, it's why you don't really see many seasons of shows go beyond four, three or four. I mean, succession, done after four. That's a season that probably in a normal time would have gone eight seasons. Sopranos mm-hmm. tried to end around like season four or five, I think, yeah. too. You know, a lot of shows do that. Breaking Bad, five seasons. But he knew, like, okay, it needs to end. Yeah. And granted, he had the same four writers or five writers, right? He had them for 
uh, Breaking Bad, and then when Better Call Saul came around, he just bumped up the assistance, essentially. So the show that I'm talking about, we're filming in this huge space in uh, in Brooklyn, and um, all the writers had, you know, glorious offices. So when season seven rolls around, Showtime dishes out an insane amount of money to renovate a piece of shit office that's right next to loading docks, construction, mm. and they're trying to put a writer's office in there. You know where all the writers worked from mostly? Starbucks. <laughs> no, not even Starbucks. From their apartments that we were paying an arm and a leg for them to, to be like, why would we come to the office? It's so noisy. Yeah. You know, you're talking top of the line equipment, TVs, water coolers, glass rooms, cur- you know, everything, the whole shebang. All for, you had about seven or eight writers, all to come into the office for the showrunner and them to, to put all their notes on a marker board and for the showrunner to just turn them down on everything. And then he basically was like, all right, well, this is how it's going to go. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So like all of that, right? And if you're like me, who's kind of seen it all, I've seen a successful writer's room and I've seen what a writer's room with people who just don't get along. Now, can I ask you, did you notice, like, a shift? Did you ever watch the show that you worked on? I watched it, and then so, I was like, I can't. I was going to ask, did, did you it notice get worse? a shift yes. in, like, the show itself? Like, quality? around when it moved? Yeah, quality, anything, writing. No, was there a I difference? Mean, I think season seven, it was when it really, well, like, I don't know. You know, a show like that, like, I mean, it went seven seasons, and then they did a movie to kind of cap it off. But Okay. Did I see the, the just the, the spiral of quality? Yes, yes, yeah. I did. Because every season was new writers, right? But kind of was the showrunner was kind of in control. Only because I I was thinking about it, and you know when people who see the information about the strikes on the outside, they hear things like greed. Maybe they don't see like a good example. But I think some of the biggest shows that we've had in the last ten twenty years, you can see what we're talking about in the writing of the show, even if you don't know what's happening behind the scenes. You could see the point where. The kind of the artistic side went out the window, and it became about the bottom dollar. It became about milking the series for as long yeah. as it can go. Well, or that's even a whole... just getting it done as soon as you can. I well, yeah, rushing ahead. Rushing. I think Walking Dead is probably one of the biggest examples because when that I when Gave that came out, that. that was such an event. Like maybe the first three seasons, it the was Halloween huge. Horror Nights did two years. Yeah, ago. and then now they just ended it. And what are we in twenty twenty three? Premiered in twenty ten. Well, then again, the guy always said that he would plan to do that long. But, you know, that was a show that probably had the same writers, same directors. Well, they fired one of the original writers at, like, the very beginning. Yeah, um, and then they, uh, Frank um, Darabont, yeah, I believe. And, yeah, he did the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And, then, like, how are you going to fire that guy who wrote the Shawshank Redemption? And, that, like, I feel like that would be a safe bet. Like, okay, he'll probably come up with something good. And then he went out the door, and then they cranked out another, like, what, seven seasons after that? And that no, he they fired him after season one. Was it after season one? It was that early? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, he did the first, because the first season was like six or seven episodes. Yeah. So, but that's the thing though, right? You have one guy that was basically kind of took the ship of the whole show. Yeah. Granted, he should get, but then like, do you, this is where it kind of gets iffy. So like one writer writes one episode, but they're a new writer. So they get like five grand. But then you have the experienced Frank Darabont who creates the series, writes most of the episodes. Granted, he has a writer's room and those writers kind of edit the scripts. And it's just kind of like a chain down of getting paid more or getting paid less. And so like, you know, it's like, but from the outside looking in, you're just like, oh, a bunch of greedy people that make tons of money. Because, you know, there is that everything that's yeah. known about the film industry being on the outside is like, well, if you, if you want to go into the industry, yeah, you're going to make a ton of money. 
but they don't hear about the the smaller scale. So Eric, you brought up that the fact that this is the writers and well, first it was just the writers that was already causing issues. You know, you and I were about to work on a job together that had already gotten pushed back, you know? Yeah. So there was a lot of people who had worked with prior that had two months off fully of work because of the writer's strike alone, because, well, you know, it was all the hoops that we had to jump through and everything. Finally, we start back up and then SAG goes on strike. And then everything's really shut. And, you know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that are that are represented through SAG throughout the United States. And, and you know, I think it's about 12,000 12, people with WGA. But, you know, there are plenty of writers, like they said, you have to stretch out, like, how much, how many shows are you really going to write and movies, yeah. especially with the content coming out? Well, it, so, so it brings us to this question, then what happens now? Where does it go? When does this end? What is going to make this come to an end, these strikes? I mean, I have a blindly optimistic theory. Which is, that, I mean, it's money really at the yeah, end of the it's day. Money. Mm-hmm. It's, it's control money. and money because they want control over how many works they're guar- how many how many weeks of work they're guaranteed a year, which yeah. is basically a year of work, or fifty two. Was it fifty four weeks in a year? Well, do so so 52. so so. Do you think it's a thing of like? Because let's be honest, them asking for a percentage of money that they get from streaming services is really unrealistic. Do you think it's a thing where like they're just throwing it out there, but it's like, well. There's these Part issues, me, but if you fix this problem, we could overlook this problem. Well, that's normally what it should be, but it doesn't seem studios or unions are budging on anything because studios know that AI is the future. Unions know that AI is the future. Actors want, and actors and writers want so control over AI. Studios want control over AI. So that's maybe the mm-hmm. thing that it's just they're going to have to figure out. But this also speaks to the bigger issue of there is no fr- legal framework of any kind of regulation for AI in this country specifically. But when it comes to like um, compensation and wanting a piece of subscription, I think everybody would have an issue with that, even that's not in the industry. Because like, why is Joe Schmo, the manager of Duncan, barely making enough to support his family, going to pay Matt Damon money? You know, mm-hmm. and so if you guys are familiar with The Lion King, the original Lion King, not that piece of shit that came out a couple of years ago. The original Simba kid singer actor was offered $2 million up front. This is like 1992. Mm-hmm. But he took residuals. And he's like a millionaire because he just took the residuals. And he yeah. continued to get residuals up until, of course, streaming took over. Because now you just watch Lion King on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that was the other thing when a lot of shows went over to the residuals. streaming platforms. It was technically, they call it a new media. Yeah. And now your contract is different, or you don't have one because it's new, and you know it's uh, what are, what's the word they use? Uh, it's like shaky, not not quite definite. There's a term that they're like throwing out there, saying like, "Oh, this is why we won't do X, Y, and Z because we're not sure if streaming is." We're well, like, talking special ed over here, so I can't yeah. tell you. Fair <laughs> enough. But but like Stutterberg came out and he was like, either the studios are making a lot of money off of their streaming numbers, or they're not making as yeah. Much. This was, and that's the yeah. other issue too, because if you. Pay attention to any shill websites out there, like like Screen Rant or you know any movie that or any website that because in order to get their passes to premieres, they have to talk how great Disney is and how yeah. great HBO is because I mean they're doing everyone a disservice, right? Yeah. Because what they're doing is they're shilling for studios that they know are making tons of money or they don't know are making tons of money and they just blindly ignore it and they're writing all these puff pieces about uh, how great streaming is doing because that's the narrative, right? Like nobody takes kind of uh, responsibility for what they're putting out there. And it's hurting a lot of people. Yeah. 
But like when you perfect example is like why is Amazon shelling out five hundred million dollars a season for Lord of the Rings? And you would never when it cost two hundred or I think it was one hundred and eighty million for all three of the original movies, original which movies shot on film in New Zealand in on New Zealand, location with real thousands weapons and armor, of people, real makeup. Like, and you're going to spend five hundred million dollars on eight episodes. That was the worst part: is that you would never know that that was the most expensive show ever made because it looked like shit. Looks like it shit. looked like Spirit of Halloween. That's what it looked like. Ant Man looked like shit. Like everything. Like I was watching. What was I watching? I mean. You go back and watch Fast and Furious, the original, and that movie's about them stealing DVDs. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was uh, and I was like, you know what? That's what more it? believable than than Vin Diesel going to space. It was you know VCRs I mean? there. I think they were trying to steal. Yeah, VCRs. It was like so, like because that came out I in two thousand and whatever. But yeah. but like, but they they made that movie for probably like forty million dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And now Fast and Furious twenty seven costs two hundred eighty million dollars to make. Mm-hmm. Like, why is it getting more expensive and everything looks like shit? So, like, if if people in the industry are saying it quietly to themselves without admitting it out loud, you know, people outside the industry, they're not signing up for subscriptions. They're not going to the movie theaters because, like, subscri- streaming can't do well if theaters are doing, at oh. least in my personal opinion, mm-hmm. because, like, okay, well, if I'm not going to go watch it on the theater, right, I guess I could wait weeks for it to come onto streaming, and that's kind of the other issue, too, yeah. because as soon as Black Adam hit theaters, I think everybody knew that it was going to hit HBO yeah. in 45 days. And Black Adam was such a piece of shit. I mean, I'm, uh, I really don't like Marvel. I'm more of a DC guy. And as a DC person... So you saw Blue Beetle? No, I haven't seen... <laughs> I saw Man of Steel, and that was it. So you didn't see The Flash? The Flash I have was no like, faith in DC The Flash was whatsoever. the epitome of I have absolutely shit. no faith in their movies, because uh, they all look the same. doesn't matter who they got. They got the same two, three people working on them, and it's just like the same movie. It's but do not you good. see? do you see why it's becoming an issue and why... Yes, and there's actually something I want like to... They're, they're asking for more money, but their quality is dipped. So it's like, why... When you go back, like like Captain America, The Winter Soldier is like so well made. Yeah. It's because a lot of the action scenes are real. It's all A lot of it's on location. Well, what year did that come out? 2014. Exactly. That was still towards the beginning of a lot of the Marvel stuff. And I think... Well, yeah. I mean, it was before the beginning. It was when they focused on quality, not quantity. But that's where we find ourselves now because... Well, yeah. That's why I think now, like, the whole Barbenheimer thing was so important because, you know, you had Black Adam in, in a theater superhero movie. Mm-hmm. Everything, yeah, it probably should have done really well. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and it didn't. It flopped. Flash, same thing. Like, Flash was terrible. You now realize, <laughs> so like, all the, not, hopefully all these studios realize that the whole superhero, the whole extended franchise thing does not work anymore. People are tired of it. Mm-hmm. And it's because well, if you look at the last couple Marvel movies, they really did not do well. Well, let's not, I don't want to get all, I don't want to go into that topic. I'm just talking the streaming thing, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. because of COVID. Well, yeah, they, they put all these movies out on streaming like so quickly, but you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer are both still not on streaming in the theaters. They're still selling out theaters like almost a month later. They realize people will still go to a movie theater. People, people will, still, will go, still pay to see something. But they can't even have people promote their movies. Granted, exactly. I think the strike happened as soon as Oppenheimer and, and Barbie. Yeah, came they out. did all their like press before. Or something. You know, so so then they were told they like the strike happened and they were told they have to walk off the carpet. Yeah. So then like, you know, granted, but you're never gonna see the people that are really struggling right now. No. Like you're not gonna see key grip, you know, or key ga- you know, the gap, or you're not gonna see any grip, PAs yeah. at that premiere. You know why? Because they're broke and, and they're right. just working on the next thing. Yeah, because this, this strike, both strikes, they don't just affect the union members. Well, the non-union people. 
like I do work in both unions. Like I kind of go back and forth. I'm mainly a grip, but then I'll do stand in and you know background just as like a side hustle. But I'm not a card holder in either union, but I could still work under like whatever agreement it was. But now that both of those unions are on strike, I'm totally frozen out of everything. I can't. So, but now just because we're running out of time to wrap this up, quick question for both of you. When you hear the strikes, being in the industry, knowing a little bit more than your average Joe, is it greed? Yeah. By studios? Because if. And do you agree with the strikes? I agree with the strikes because it's what I said before. I think it speaks to a larger movement in the country. And it's greed because you find the same problem. During COVID, I drove a truck for Peapod. We're told uh, for like two, three weeks during the pandemic, we're heroes, we're essential workers, no hazard pay. We didn't get master sanitizer until like the end of the pandemic. Eric's like, in the COVID department too. Uh, well, you could have hooked was, me was, up, was, man. Was, <laughs> you came to my Eric. truck. Yeah, I mean, wrap us up. Ultimately, it comes down to greed, but there's a little bit of greed to be seen from both sides. And for me, it's like, honestly, I could not give a fuck. Like, get this over <laughs> with so I could go back to work. Yeah, we go back to work. We yeah, need food. We need, we need work. We need to create. I mean, we're in an industry where, like, we're, like you said at the very beginning, is we're entering the new phase of this. Is like, yeah. the sooner we get this situated, the sooner we could get into this new phase. It truly feels like it's completely uncharted. Mm -hmm. Like, as are probably most things. But it's murky waters, but it's particular. a course correction. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think we're headed towards, I'm hopeful we're headed towards a course correction. Yeah. Aiden, thank you for coming on. Thank we you appreciate for having you. Me. We'll get you on again. Yeah. Come I'll back come anytime. Back. Will do.